This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show. I am one of the hosts of Matthew Rushing and with me, as he is always, Dan Gunther. Dan, how are you doing, man? Hey, Matthew, doing really well. Really excited for tonight's show. Uh, we've got an awesome author on to talk to, so really, really excited to be here tonight. You know, I... Gosh, Dan, I I couldn't be more excited. You know, I love when we have uh, Kirsten on the show. It's always just a blast. And I I think, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy about Kirsten's books is that I feel like that we could really talk to her about all the things she puts in her books for a really long time. You know, reading through A Pocket Full of Lies, I just personally felt like there was so much that was going on and that she was talking about and just little things here and there, issues, themes, all of this. It's it's just incredible. So I, I love reading a Kirsten Byer Voyager book. Never thought that I'd say that I love reading a Voyager book, but Kirsten has me just painted silly with awesomeness. <laughs> I, that didn't even make sense, but that's how excited I get. I can't even make sense. Uh, you and me both, Matthew. Uh I and just like you, I never ever thought that the series that I would be most interested in getting back to uh year after year would be the Voyager series under Kirsten Beyer because yeah, they're always a treat. And uh this this month's novel is definitely no exception. It it really is the case. And uh you know, it's kind of sad, Dan. We actually don't have any news this week. There's nothing to talk about, unfortunately, really. Uh, in in Star Trek Bookland, uh, no no covers to judge, no new comics or anything. But uh, with an interview like this, I figure it's probably best for us to just dive into the interview. Uh, before we do that, though, Dan, uh, just let everybody know where they can find us and where they can connect with us online. Definitely, Matthew. Well, of course, one of the great ways to get a hold of our podcasts here on Trek FM is through iTunes. Uh, and if you are an iTunes user... Uh, you can really help us out by hitting the subscribe button, uh, giving us a star rating and a review. That really, really helps people find our podcasts. Uh, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can download and stream the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link there as well. 
Uh, now, if you want to get in contact with us, we have a form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. Look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Now, on Facebook, we also have the Babel Conference. Just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or you can go to our website at trek.fm and click Discussion on the menu bar. Now, for our podcast, Literary Treks, we, of course, have a special Goodreads group. We have bookshelves with all our previously covered books, as well as what we're currently reading, so you know what's coming up for future shows and can keep caught up with us here on the show. And, of course, there are always great conversations happening there about all of the books and comics that make up the Star Trek universe. Awesome, Dan. Well, you know, I hope everybody will join us there. I want to remind everybody, too, you know, if you want to help the show grow, especially here in the 50th anniversary, make sure you just you hit that subscribe button in iTunes. That really helps. And, of course, while you're there in iTunes, give us a star rating and review. It's been a while since we've had a new one, and we'd really appreciate your help in continuing to grow the show and help more listeners find us. And, and again, in the 50th anniversary here, we're celebrating with these great books. We'd love to be able to reach more people. And uh, helping us grow in iTunes is one of the best ways to do that. So we appreciate everybody who's done that before. And we ask you to go in and make their, your contribution. And let us know what you're thinking about the show. You know, Give us your honest rating and review. And it'll really help us out. And of course, we'll give you a shout out on the show as well. Well, Dan, I think it's time to head into the feature and talk to Kirsten Beyer. Okay, Dan, it's finally here. <laughs> it's finally here. Uh, we were yeah, we're just really excited in news, and it was hard to contain, but we don't have to contain anymore because uh, we're here for our interview with Kirsten Beyer, a.k.a. KMFB. Kirsten, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Hello. Hey, Kirsten. So happy to have you on the show again. Well, it's great to be back. You guys are awesome. Uh, it's, you know, um, Dan and I say this, I think, every time that we get to one of your books, <laughs> but we can't believe that Voyager is the series that we're most looking forward to every year to see what you do. And it's just, it really is a testament to your writing that I keep coming back every year to, to Trek books and I'm thinking, okay. When's that ne next Voyager book coming back? <laughs> and like that, you know, I'm the DS9 guy. It's a DS9 is my favorite show. That shouldn't be what I'm, 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 but I'm thinking to myself, when's Voyager coming? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's all the crap. I do not be, do not apologize to me, young lady. Do not no, apologize to me. Definitely do because, not be sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've made me love Kim and Chakotay and all of these characters that I, I, I mean, I'm just going to spoil it right now. By the end of the story, I was misty Aww. at a scene that I'll mention later because I don't I don't want to talk about it right now. But uh -huh. you really you had me you had me choken up by what was happening with the growth of these characters, and I just I I needed to say that at the beginning because it really is just a testament to what you're doing with these books, and I think why they're so wildly successful. So I I wanted to say thank you. Well, you could not possibly be more welcome because it's a lot of fun to write them. <laughs> I remember, you know, we were we were talking a little bit before the show and, you know, we, we had talked in an atonement. And I remember in atonement, we kind of discussed this idea that these characters kind of needed a break. Mm -hmm. 
And you said that was kind of your plan to start with. Uh-huh. But instead, a pocket full of lies came out. And I wanted to talk to you about that evolution of this story, you know, and how you, you know, you got to the idea with the Krenim and the year of hell. And I mean, basically resetting the biggest reset button Voyager ever had by making it matter. I mean, how did that come to play (laughs) when you had thought in your brain, maybe we should give these characters like a Risa trip or something? Uh, How did that come about? Yeah, well, you know. So this one is really, like, the evolution of the story happened over the course of several years. So um, some of it's kind of hard to, uh, like, not even, like, remember how it used to work and now how it works. Um, And I don't want to get confused. But, um, yeah, so you're totally right that when Atonement was done, I really did feel like um, everybody needed a break. And... um, like a Not Kit Kat that bar. <laughs> there wouldn't be challenges and obstacles and things, but I wanted the the next sort of series of adventures that they faced for a while to be more infused with the sense of wonder that sort of underpins all of Trek to begin with. You know, mm, we're out yeah. there uh, to see things that we've never seen before and learn about them and to have there be a positive impact to that. And yeah, characters are going to grow and change and develop as we go along, but you know, I was um, I was sort of thinking or feeling the need to kind of move in that direction, just kind of personally as a writer, as well as just, you know, in terms of thinking big picture, what does the story need now? Um, but I had this problem. I had two problems. Three problems. Okay. <laughs> the first, so you've got, okay, Kirsten's got problems. <laughs> <laughs> the first was that I had been thinking for a very long time that I wanted to do a Tuvok story. And um, because, you know, obviously I can't have him back. He's part of Titan now, and that's totally cool because the writers on Titan are doing a fabulous job with him. But, um, you know, I had I had set up this moment after Janeway came back in Protectors where she reached out to Tuvok and she didn't get a response from him. And that sort of happened organically for me in that I was working through the scenes and I was, you know, thinking about how would he respond. And what really struck me as being true when I thought about um, Tuvok at the end of Destiny, uh, which is we're closer to that than we are to almost anything else that you've read about Tuvok at this point in my timeline. Right. Um, what seemed true to me is that he wouldn't be all like, oh, hi, I'm so glad you're not dead. Um, like apart <laughs> from being Vulcan and not expressing himself that way. Um, like, <laughs> it's agreeable uh, to find out you're not dead. <laughs> Um, it just, it it seemed to me that he would have a very hard time with her coming back to life when his son couldn't. Hmm. So I sort of let that go. And I remember chatting with Mike Martin at the time, who was doing more work with Titan at that moment. This was years ago. Um, and him being like, well, yeah, go ahead and leave it there. And then, you know, we'll sort of keep talking as time goes on and see about, you know, if one of us wants to pick that up and run with it. But there's kind of no way for Titan to do that now because they're so far beyond it. So it was going to have to be me. So, um, so I needed a, I wanted a Tuvok story. And I knew if I was going to do that, I had to get him back from the Beta Quadrant. And the only way to do that was to create a mission that literally he was the only person in the galaxy that could fulfill, right? Because if anybody mm-hmm. else can do this job, we're not going to burn all that Venomite and go get him. That's a ridiculous waste of resources. So, um, 
So that becomes a, a priority. Um, the second issue was this other Janeway story that literally had been burning a hole in my brain uh, for like seven years now. Um, because back when I was developing Full Circle, um, I had originally conceived of it as its own trilogy, right? And the first book was the first part of Full Circle, which was What Fates Impose. And the second book was um, What Men Abide. And that, that eventually became two parts of one book. Um, but the third story, the story that would have taken the place of Unworthy, was the story of the other Catherine. So um, my thought was that rather than, like, it, it, it didn't make sense to me to think about bringing back our Catherine, the one from our universe, um, kind of early on, really kind of ever or certainly that early on. But what occurred to me that would be a really fun thing to do would be to reintroduce the Janeway character and have her be a totally different person. And I had always wondered about the ending of Shattered. Like, from the first time I saw that episode, I was like, what is that weird light thing? And is she really okay? You know what I mean? Like, it was just a weird thing that I thought when I first saw that episode and, it, you know, ends up sitting in my brain with all the other stuff that's there. It's weird. And, um, and you know, somehow I had concocted this notion that the Krenum had um, captured her in that moment. And it made sense because it was a weird temporal anomaly that we never quite understood and nobody ever explained it. And it was like, oh, what if the Krenum were coming back for her? And so I had this Janeway that was Catherine Janeway, but who had never experienced the seven years in the Delta Quadrant that everybody else had and would have had her own sort of horrifying traumatic past that she had to reckon with. And the thought of bringing her in as um, part of this story um, and allowing the fleet to have their mission um, with that Catherine as opposed to our Catherine um, was sort of the goal, like way back in those early formative stages. This was before I really had come up with Eden. This was, you know, way back when. Um, and at the time, Marco, who was editing the books, looked at that story and he's like, yeah, it's great, but no, we're not going to go down that road anytime soon. So fine. So we move on and we create all this other stuff and we let that go. But like she was always in my brain as this character that wouldn't leave me alone. So I've got the Tuvok problem. I've got the Janeway character who won't leave me alone. And then I had the problem that begins every new story that I tell, which is the question that I always ask, um, which is kind of what's ticking me off right now? What's making me angry in the world? And um, at that moment in time, which was like a year and a half ago, there was a lot that was going on uh, around U.S. relations with Israel and what was happening in Gaza. And my thought was, wow, I wonder what would happen if I put Voyager down in the middle of Gaza. And so I talked to Margaret a little bit about it, and somehow all of those things came together in my head. And then it became clear to me that, well, okay, um, this is not going to be the light, cheery awe-inspiring thing that I was hoping to write, but it is something I very much want to write. So that's what happened. That's really cool, though. I mean, because one of the things that I, I really like about the evolution of the story as I was reading is is the way that you were, again, taking all of these, you know, 
interesting elements that Voyager kind of spread out through things. And like you said, like Shattered, it doesn't really deal with any of the questions that you end up with. It just, it's the episode and then it goes on the next week. Yeah. But you're left with all these things in your brain. What? what why? <laughs> and what, you know, yeah. What was and that? And what I loved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what was that? And why am I the only person who wants to know? But it was so cool because, you know, you're weaving that in and then the way that you had the Krennum come in and working in the year of hell and actually all make that mean something. Mm. I mean, it, it just it, it creates such meaning for us as the reader. And I, I just I couldn't believe how you were taking something like Shattered, a season seven episode that is eh, um and really creating this this wonderful other Janeway that we have to like deal with and then mixing that with the Krenim, which is, I mean, one of the biggest threats in the Delta Quadrant and truly scary people. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, it, all of that weaving together. I didn't know how you were going to do it. And, <laughs> and super spoiler alert. But you even used all of that to put a nice, wonderful, amazing bow on the Q storyline that had been kind of running through. Yeah, that was... You did. Well, so, like, about that, (laughs) um, I remember writing the line about, you're my enemy now. And for a while, thinking about all the different forms that could take. And being like, oh, God, at some point I'm going to have to have Q, like, really kick their asses. And that didn't sound like any fun to me because, like, there's no way anybody but Q wins that. So, like, all I remember asking of, like, my fellow writers, because, like, shortly after that, I knew Mac was going to use the Q in the Persistence of um, Memory or somewhere in that trilogy. Maybe it was the third book. Um, there was going to be an appearance by Q. And I just remember asking that everybody sort of, like, tread very carefully because I wasn't sure yet. Um how I was going to resolve that. And yeah, somehow when I got to this um, and I knew that I needed to save another Catherine, um, the queue were the only possibility. So I had to sort of work through um, why they would have done that. And once I had it, it was sort of like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like in some ways we could have gone the rest of our lives and never seen the queue again in that way. But 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 it was sort of there, and I kind of really felt like I if I if I could make it work, I really wanted to, you know, just sort of let that give that a better ending in some ways. Mm-hmm. Because it, the other choice is to just make a big huge story, and I didn't really want to go that way. At this point, there's other things I want to do, so you know. Yeah, I mean that felt perfect to me. Like it was just kind of a nice little coda to that whole idea there. Were you guys thinking the whole time that it was Q that saved her? I'm sorry, like, we're so far yes. beyond spoilers at this point. If you haven't read this book, <laughs> yeah. you should stop now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you completely just ruined the whole thing. No I'm sorry. talk about this one without just wrecking it for you. Yeah. I, I We were talking about this uh, before we even started recording anything tonight, Dan and I. Um, so way beyond the other side of the page. And I, I knew it was Q, but I didn't know if Q was being vindictive. Right. So that mm-hmm. he had kept Catherine alive, so basically he could torture her for not just a year of hell, right. but years of hell. Yeah. And I really liked that. Um, I didn't know until we got to that scene because I was so busy thinking about all the other things going on in the story. <laughs> right. He kept my brain so busy. 
yeah, I couldn't I couldn't really give too much more to the, the fact that okay, that's got to be Q that saved her, but I don't know why yet. Yeah. Well, um, the fact that seven and I liked saying that, it, right? Yeah, that ambiguity was great because I was like, "Oh, Q is a mean <laughs> son yeah. of a, you know, I mean, good, good night." Yeah. I mean, when yeah. they when they first mentioned that there was a doctor that saved her, and like in that particular conversation, they just kind of move on from that, and I'm like, "No, no, 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 wait, 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 go, go back, go back. Who was that? <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> I need a name." Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, as soon as we get the name Quinn, you're like, okay, yep. <laughs> One of the folks who read a pass on that got to that section and was making notes, and they were like, um, wait a minute, uh, Quinn, that's the wrong name. Quinn was the other one. And I'm like, yeah, he took the name as a tribute to the other one who he was always really impressed by. I hope everybody got <laughs> that. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was a really, again, it yeah. was... You know, one of the things that you kind of do throughout the book is you'll place great thematic elements throughout. Yeah. And at the same time, you also just place those wonderful little Easter eggs. And if you're really paying attention, yeah, you, mm-hmm. you'll get them. And that was one of those things where you're like, oh, Quinn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. That's what it was supposed to be like. I'm glad. Um, one thing I was thinking of, like, and and Matthew kind of mentioned this, using shattered as a jumping off point, you know, we've, we've, you've kind of done that with shattered and you've done it with twisted. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of wondering if we just want to go through and find all of the rest of the past tense verb episodes. <laughs> so we know which one we're going to do next. <laughs> but um, the one thing I wanted to say is like when, when you do these things and kind of take a little element from these episodes, it really adds something to those episodes so that when you go back and watch them again, like I kind of have your stories in the back of my mind while I read them or watch them now. And it really, really adds a lot more to Voyager as a series as well. Well, that's cool. Cause that's certainly, I think one of the goals of the books, but of course, you know, it's such a fine line between sort of paying homage and, you know, sort of Easter egging it and whatever. And then just sort of having it be a crutch. Like, we can't tell an original story, you know. We can only, we're only relying on the stuff from the show because, you know, if we're going to err on one side, I'd much rather err on the side of originality than mm-hmm. than that. But you know, in this case, it was sort of like much like with the Eternal Tide. It's like, okay, just come on, just go with me on this one, and it'll be fine. And then I promise I won't, you know, make every single book about old episodes. You know what I'm saying? Well, but I I, I really want to compliment you though because one of the things that uh, about this is that. You know, you're really not just copying old episodes. You're just using bits and pieces of those stories to help craft a new story. And I, there's to me, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because that's kind of what Star Trek did. You know, I especially think of in Deep Space Nine where we're telling a more continuous type story. Right. You do build off the pieces that you put out there. And, and Voyager, for all of its issues, it, it did kind of leave some wonderful puzzle pieces that you can use to craft a whole new puzzle. Yeah. And that's what this that's what this story to me kind of felt like was just a new puzzle mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you were putting together from disparate pieces throughout the, you know, Delta Quadrant. And you know, I'm totally okay with that because like Dan said, now I kind of I, I want to go back and watch Year of Hell and Shattered. <laughs> and I, I I can't remember the last time I watched myself some Voyager. So I mean, you're not only making me want to buy the book, but you're making me want to go back and watch the show. And I think that's a great Star Trek book. Mm, Anytime exactly. you want to go back to episode or 
you want to continue to get the books. Yeah. I mean, it's a win-win-win, as Michael Scott said. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, I was one of those people, too, who was always uncomfortable with the reset button at the end of Year of Hell. And I think, I can't remember if I was talking to you guys about it or somebody else, but um, a while back I saw an article that was talking about, um, from the point of view of the writers of that particular episode, that they had a version of it where Voyager did, the crew did learn about the Year of Hell after everything was undone. Or there was a way to do the ending so that they didn't forget everything that had happened to them. And somehow in the course of production, it got to the point where they just couldn't do it that way and they had to let it go the way they did. And um, it just always kind of broke my heart because, you know, there was so much to learn from that experience. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, as a cautionary tale, if nothing else, and to have it just be completely wiped out and to have it be, you know, like so... Um, such a strange thing that in one moment they say you can't go into our space and Janeway's like bite me we're going and then the next time they say you can't go into our space she's like oh, okay well set a course around them and let's move on you know what I mean it's like well, what 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 <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um are we having a good day or a bad day or what's the what's the deal here and yes the guy at the end was a lot nicer than the guy at the beginning but still you know it was just um that always kind of bothered me well and it it, it did give us the the I mean, one of the best Janeway quotes ever. Mm-hmm. Time's up. <laughs> you know, so that's good. But you you bringing that up brings me right to something that's really interesting is this. When I was thinking specifically about Year of Hell and, you know, Janeway's first reaction is to go, screw it, we're going through it. Right. Um, which rhymes. I didn't even mean to. Uh, and she has something in this book where there's this idea of home that Catherine doesn't quite have yet that a lot of us do, which is home is not a place. You know, home is what we make, uh, the people that are around us right. and all of that. And so it was almost as if what's driving Janeway for those seven years in Voyager is a misunderstanding that that home really isn't a place yeah. that way, you know, Um and, and that was kind of that interesting thing that you do here is you have her kind of start to learn a new lesson, which is what home is. Right. Something that the old Janeway and even new Janeway don't quite have yet. And I thought that was a really smart idea because when I thought about that, I was like, that really is the uh, bad psycho- psychology of Janeway that's driving her, that's she's making some bad decisions because she's thinking of home in the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I kind of don't doubt just based on what I believe to be true of Janeway as a character that had there been a point during the seven year journey when the odds were so overwhelmingly against them and there was absolutely no path through that had she been forced to, you know, settle down in some way, like if somehow some magical huge brick wall goes up in front of them and there's just simply no way to get past it, that I think she could have made peace with that eventually. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think mm-hmm. yeah. year of hell aside, she would have sort of, you know, just been like, forget it. It's home or nothing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think she's crazy like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I do think that all of the characters on the show, um, with the exception of strangely, um, Harry Kim, kind of in Endgame, um, it took getting home for them to realize that home was 
you know, right there already, you know. And there have been other characters along the way since we've begun the books that have expressed that. I mean, I'm thinking of Chakotay in particular at the end of The Eternal Tide, mm-hmm. when he's like, whoa, we, we are home, you know. Um, but she hasn't quite. You're right that, that neither of the Jane, well, um, our Janeway hasn't really um, internalized that completely yet, whereas the Denzit had to learn it in the hardest way imaginable, you know. Mm. And by the choices that she made that Catherine has never really made, you know. I mean, the Denzit was faced with, there's no way for me to get back, and so she embraced her new life completely, you know, in a way that um, that's a choice our Catherine's never had to make, really. Yeah, our our Catherine does not have, the Admiral does not have in her office a poster that says, home is where the heart is. No, uh-uh. <laughs> like that, she doesn't get no. that just yet. No. <laughs> no. But, you know, I mean, enough people around her do that I think, you know, I think she will get there. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm not sure you... how much more I'll have to put her through before she does, but she'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so one thing about this novel that I noticed is there's kind of, uh, it deals really interestingly with the ideas of despair and depression. Uh, I was noting, noticing most notably through Nancy Conlon, uh, going through a very tragic battle. Um, and I felt you were really able to capture the feelings of kind of utter hopelessness as well as the effects of the people around someone who's battling something like that. I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about the inspiration or the kind of genesis for what Conlon goes through in this book. Well, let me think, because so much of what you're talking about happened along the way as I was writing it. It wasn't pre-planned. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what was going to happen to her was pre-planned, but um, all the all the stuff around it, I didn't really know until I wrote it, if that makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. because there was the, you know, at the end of atonement, there's a choice to be made, right? Either she's fine and we really dodged a huge bullet there or she's not. And, um, you know, as much as I don't live to put these people through meat grinders, um, when you have an opportunity to, you have another obstacle that's already just baked into the cake it seems like an awful waste not to explore it, you know? And so having had her be possessed by that alien entity who by all rights should have killed her, um, was certainly fertile ground for storytelling. And I knew that. Um, and also I think helpful in terms of helping to show us more of who she is and who Harry is, because he's a character who I feel like um, has gotten a lot of good development, especially lately, but still needs more. So um, yes, yes. You know, it was it was kind of a thing that it was it was it was I knew it was going to be really painful, but it was much too hard to pass up um, to just sort of say, "Oh no, she's fine." Um, so, in terms of uh, how she would deal with it, I mean, I went back actually before I um, wrote this one, as I was prepping this one, and I reread as much of the Corps of Engineers as I had time to, which sadly wasn't as much as I wanted to. 
so I read as much of Corps of Engineers as I had time to, looking for any bits and pieces of character that uh, the writers who originally created her might have dropped for me. Um, I was particularly looking for incidents where, you know, she might they might have encountered an alien that could explain the medical issues that were going on, but I just didn't find anything, so I knew I was going to have to make that up. But what what actually really struck me uh, in my research was reading Wildfire, which I had never done before. I mean, I knew that it was this breathtakingly brilliant piece of work that Mac had done, and everybody had always raved about it, but I had just never had a chance to get to it. And um, once I read that, I was like, oh, right. These people have faced some truly extraordinary existential threats and, and, and some really difficult moments. And even though she wasn't a huge character in that, uh, there was no way that that didn't, you know, sort of eat her up. And it was funny because there had been a moment in Eternal Tide when she was confronted with, um, you know, the, the abyss of the Omega and eat, eating all the ships and everything, where... Her reaction had just been to basically freeze, like she just, you know, hit a wall and couldn't get past the sense of loss mm -hmm. and do her job. Like it took her a little bit of time to pull herself together and get back to work. Um, and I had sort of based that in the events of Destiny. But when I went back and reread, it was like, it's really more than Destiny. I mean, she has been through so stinking much. And... And as much as these people are, are heroes and larger than life and amazing, um, you know, I'm always looking for the truth that's underneath that so that we can relate to them as readers, you know, so that they're not just folks up on a hill that we're never going to be able to be like. Um, they're people who have struggles that make sense to us. So, um, you know, thinking about how she would confront something like this it made sense to me that she would keep fighting, but she's fighting the wrong in the wrong way. She's fighting the wrong mm. battle in some yeah. ways. And right. it takes the love of the people around her to help her see that, you know, to help her focus on what the real problem is that she needs to be fighting. So, um, you know, that, but it just, it, it, it all happened in there. I mean, so much of this happens when I just put two people in a room and let them start talking to each other. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it starts with her in Cambridge, and then it's her and Harry, and then it's her and Torres, and slowly it comes out, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it just, that it rings so true, like having known uh, people battling depression and that sort of thing, like getting to that part of that book, like these felt like, you know, I could have been in a room with them uh, for how real that felt and, you know, how I've seen that before. And it was, yeah, it was really, really moving. Oh, well, thank you. It's, yeah, it is. It's hard though, too. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, it's hard to see people that we care about suffer. And I don't know, it's, it's a fine line between, you never, you never want it to be suffering for the sake of, let me just rip your heart out. Do you know what I mean? You, oh, yeah, sure. I, I at least yeah. always want there to be a point to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there certainly is. I mean, I, there's more story for Nancy, obviously, coming. So, because um, we're just, a, I, I intentionally made this a, you know, you're not going to die next week. We've got time kind of situation. Because, um, you know, I wanted to make it back up to the top of the hill. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I very, very, very selfishly want a very happy ending for her. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and the thing is, it's really, you know, I've been, um, 
I'm sure you guys are Star Wars, at least fans or, you know, have a passing interest in it. And, you know, um, (laughs) it's been a lot back in the front of our consciousness again with the release of the new film and stuff. And I've been thinking a lot about the differences between Star Trek and Star Wars. And it does seem to me that there's a underlying hopefulness um, or positive sense of uh, the ability to overcome that exists in Trek that is a little bit different in Star Wars. And I don't know, I've just been thinking a lot about that lately. That's understandable. Mm -hmm. I think a lot about Star Wars these days. (laughs) Uh, But... Yeah, that's probably just because I have a new Star Wars podcast. Anyway, that's a totally different subject. But um, I was thinking, you know, not only is Nancy going through this, but, you know, I was really surprised to see uh, this part of Tuvok. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as you said, we're so much closer to Destiny than we are to anything else. And I really liked that you were going to deal with that. And I was thinking to myself, wow, I have not seen a Vulcan go through this much except for maybe to Paul mm-hmm. and be this tortured and enraged. Mm-hmm. And um, so talk about uh, crafting that story for him. Cause you said that was one of the foundations for wanting to do this book about getting him from the point at the beginning where he's just full of rage and seeing his son's death as senseless to being somebody who sees it as, no, it wasn't senseless, especially to him. Yeah. And that's what should matter. Because uh, that's a huge transformation, especially for somebody we're used to being so non-emotional. Right. Well, I mean, there's the thing first that you always have to remember with Vulcans, which is that it's not that they're not emotional. It's that they have right. these incredibly <laughs> deeply powerful emotions that are on the shortest leash imaginable. Mm-hmm. Because they know that if they don't keep it all contained that it will explode you know um it's not that they don't feel it's that they feel in a way that it's hard for us to imagine like we we couldn't live if we felt in the extremes that they experience all day long which is why they have 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 so much mental discipline um you know it, it, it that really begins for me when i read um the end of the destiny trilogy you know i had read i had been given the outlines for those books and then I, as Mac wrote them, all of us who were working on the books that came immediately after would read them in their first draft stage and sort of comment on the characters and stuff. And um, he had done some work with Tuvok earlier in the trilogy that I remember sort of re asking him to look at again. I would say redirecting because you don't redirect David Mack, but um, <laughs> basically where he had written Tuvok in a way that I felt was pretty like he was kind of just being a dick all the time. And I, Tuvok <laughs> is not that. <laughs> I mean, he's, um, no. <laughs> he's, he's Vulcan in his demeanor and he's very stoic in his presentation, but I've never for a moment doubted, uh, his, his the deep connections that he felt to his family and to his found family, uh, on the ship. Um, just watch, you can't watch the, the, the series without seeing how deeply he cares about these people. Um, so, but, but somehow the outlines had never addressed or like had never really captured that moment at the end of destiny where he's standing on the planet, I think with his wife and he's just unable to move on. And I remember just sort of being gut punched when I read that going, Oh God, we have to deal with that, you know? Um, and having no idea how I was going to be able to, because 
I knew I wasn't going to have that character. And, you know, I had discussed it with some of the other writers, and I know Chris uh, was working through some of it in Over a Torrent Sea. But as I continued to, um, to, to read the Titan stuff, I never really got a sense. It never had a period on the end of that story that I was comfortable with. Like, I never saw him move from the extremity that I saw him in at the end of Destiny to where I felt he needed to be if he was going to keep functioning as a Starfleet officer. Um, so, so I just felt like I had a responsibility to the character to give him that. And that in a lot of ways, the only place he could do work like that was with the Voyager group. If he's not doing it on Vulcan with his family, mm, he's doing so it true. with, with our characters mm-hmm. and that they were among the only people, um, who would really be able to call him on his bullshit, if that makes sense. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. yeah totally. Oh yeah. Um, because, you know, the folks on Titan seem to sort of, you know, they have a, tr- they have a tremendous amount of respect for him uh, and what he's achieved and his abilities and how long he's been in the service and whatever. And they expect a lot of him and he keeps rising to the challenge. But I'm like, you know, you, you, you got to fix the broken stuff because he, he, David Mack made the choice to have him broken badly by his son's death. And yeah, come um, on, Deanna. I, I honor that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I really liked that line where uh, Tuvok says something like, I haven't, I haven't really achieved the, he didn't say this exactly, but I haven't really achieved the closeness with the Titan crew that I have with the Voyager crew. And that just, that just rang so true. And, uh, you know, and you start to wonder how much of that is because of what he went through uh, in destiny and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's odd because in a way, I don't know, there are times when I'm reading uh, Titan and I haven't read all of them. Um, I've sort of, I read most of the early ones and then I I missed a few, uh, but I picked up a couple as well. Like I recently read uh, Swallow's latest one, which scared the bejesus out of me. So Um, good. a good one. With the, you know, the sight unseen. That's what it was. Yes. Yes. Um, Oh, that was scary. Um, (laughs) It it was freaky. um, Like, I don't really, like, I used to really want replicators and now I'm like, "Mm, not so much. No, no, I'm good. The, the, The thing about, uh, it, it, it's hard for me in a lot of ways having Tuvok uh, outside of Voyager. Like I remember at the beginning being like, Oh, it's fine. You know, we've got plenty of characters and God knows we're going to have plenty of new ones. So whatever. But, um, God, having him back, even for just a little while, just, it just made me feel like, Oh God, like the family's complete. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, like it's never so as good so. for me as when everybody's together, you know? And even though Neelix is, on Nutalix, he's in such a good place and we're checking in with him often enough that I, I feel like, you know, I've got my hands on him. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But Tuvok is like, you know, he's so far away. So like, I don't know, just, I don't know. I miss him. That's all. <laughs> it was funny that like, cause I didn't realize how much I missed him as a part of this group until he got back on board Voyager. And, and I was just like, wow, I, I forgot how good that was. <laughs> Yeah, it really was. But also, I mean, like I hadn't, um, I'm not sure if in the first iteration of this story, I had Tuvok interacting very much with our old Janeway, but it was, that was also just fascinating to put those two together because, you know, they have a history that's sort of hinted at in some of the Jerry Taylor books, um, 
of mm-hmm. Catherine in her first command and Tuvok evaluating her and sort of the rocky road that their friendship started out on. Um, and, you know, so so in this story, they're not as far from that as we, you know what I mean, as we would like them to be. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's just that underpinning of absolute trust um, that she wouldn't have experienced in years. I mean, apart from Dane, there wouldn't have been anybody in the universe, I think, who would have been as um, as as able to get inside of her and sort of work on her defenses as mm-hmm. as well as Tuvok would. But to bring them together when they're both so broken was what was important, you know, to be able to do. Because it's just, it's almost like neither one of them had the energy for for lying, you know, um, to each, like they can't lie to each other, and that's kind of a lot of too what 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 um, ended up happening in this book as everybody is deceiving one another for really good reasons. Um, it's finding those moments when you can't lie, you know, and contrasting that with the sort of games everybody else is playing for their own reasons. Well, and that was something that was really interesting about the book. You know, there's this whole certain point of view. You know, we talked a little about Star Wars, the Obi-Wan thing. Um, And the heart of the story kind of, there was, you know, the truth is a lie and the lie is a truth. And so many people, it kind of came down to their perspective and knowledge of a situation because nobody had the full and clear picture mm-hmm. and really kind of led to as well this uh, this idea that you know knowledge is dangerous especially without the wisdom and experience to filter it through yep and i really really liked that about this story because you know each one of these characters had a piece of the truth they just didn't have it all yep but they also had a bunch of lies and, and trying to sift through that in life. Yeah. That's a frustrating thing. And I mean, we're living through it right now for sure. Yeah. Um, in our world, yeah. you know, just, and, and I really just liked how you created this, uh, malaise of lies that everybody's trying to sift through and figure out, uh, and how frustrating that is in life when you're trying to hold on to something. You know, yeah, um, because it's not like it's a nefarious thing. It's not like it's a oh, mastermind right, yeah. with a plot that they're, mm-hmm. you know, trying to. It's people who just have their own ideas about what they need in order to survive and what's most important to them, and that coming into conflict with other people who have equally powerful agendas. You know, and nobody's really wrong in this case. I mean, the Krenum aren't wrong to want to preserve their way of life and everything that they have learned and to protect the tools that they have developed to help them, you know, manipulate the universe toward their best ends. Um, and it would be nice if everybody could just see that, oh, but hey, the Federation is really cool and, like, they would never hurt you, so drop your defenses and let's talk and imagine how much further along we could get as, you know, corporeal beings if we would share our knowledge freely rather than, you know, always having to drag it from one another, kicking and screaming, you know, um, really too, I, the, the, the first image of this story that was clear in my head as I, as I, once I knew kind of where we, where we were going to go was the image in the cave where time has stopped and Mm, all of these people are in the process of dying because of this, 
turn of events that um, in some ways was inevitable, but nobody really planned for, you know. It was just all these competing agendas that got us to this moment. And so I had this image of a battlefield where time had stopped and somebody had the ability to stand there um, and grab the, the three or four people who were responsible for this moment and like walk them through the battlefield and say, see this guy, his name is John. He's married to this lady named Sandra and they have three kids and they are madly in love with one another. And one of their kids is having problems right now. And now that's going to get worse because he's dying. And see this girl, this is Sarah. And she, you know what I'm saying? Like, like if you could, yeah. if you could stop time and show people how what they are doing impacts so many other people, um, would it make a difference? That was the question that I had was, would it matter? Or would we still just keep plowing through and creating all this chaos, you know? I mean, like, what is it going to take to get people to step back and just start working on a better solution than the one that we've been pursuing for so long that is clearly not getting us anywhere, you know? Well, it really made me think of uh, the original series episode, A Taste of Armageddon, where they're fighting the war with computers Yep. And at, at the end, Kirk takes that away from them and says, you know, if you want to continue this war, you have to do it for real. And, yeah. you know, says, you know, oh, that'll that'll stop them. And that always didn't really ring true to me because yeah. that never, never stopped us. Yeah, that's never stopped anyone else fight a war before. So I, I, I thought this solution here was like a really elegant answer to that. Like, yeah, this might actually do it. This this is the one thing that might actually stop people from going over that cliff. And uh, I, I thought that was great. Yeah, if you could come right up to the precipice of Armageddon mm -hmm. and then ask the question, is this really what you had in mind? You know, because yeah. this is where it ends, period, end of story. Whether you think so, whether you think there's a way to win this or not, this is the only logical ending for your action. Because in some ways, I do feel like that's where we are in some parts of the world, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, you, you cannot keep doing this because the end game sucks so bad. And how is it that you don't see that? Or if you don't care, why don't you care? You know, like what got you to the point where it just doesn't matter to you if the world ends, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. But then the other piece of it that um, I knew from the very beginning, and I didn't know who was ultimately going to be responsible for discovering it. And in this case, it happened to be Tuvok, is that beyond that moment, the only other choice that everybody has to wrap their brain around is what's required to forgive because we can't move forward without that either. Right. Yeah. That goodness. That was one of the things that I, I really enjoyed there as well uh, was the idea of how do you find a way to forgive what has been, you know, legitimate grievances, terrible, awful, you know, things. Yeah. Uh, and and I love what, you know, Tuvok says, you know, that the only way to have, you know, I, you actually say in the book, you have Janeway say, this is why they can't have nice things. <laughs> I do. Uh, and uh, and then I was thinking to myself, this is why we can have nice things because Kirsten Beyer writes Voyager now. Uh, <laughs> and but that that those characters, you know, in that situation um, you you can't go on with life and actually have a good, fulfilling life if you're continuing to hold on to this hatred because it does destroy. 
and that that hatred will just eat you alive. Yeah. And in in some of the ways, um, the way that, you know, Janeway's past used to kind of eat her alive uh, and she would second guess herself and and all of that. And she's kind of moving past that. But with these characters and and, and this other Janeway there, she's right at the beginning of that process and, and uh, Tuvok's a little bit farther along down the road, but Mm -hmm. it was so interesting to see a Vulcan be on that road and, 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 you know, because we don't really see that much with Vulcans right. in that way. And I loved that. And then, but have him be that catalyst for this Janeway. Uh, and then, of course, putting her in the idyllic state that she ends up in and Q, yeah. you know, grants her basically the rest of her life to live out in, in wonderful peace. Now, I had, um, I've had a couple of folks take issue with the Denzitz ending with the idea that this is really a happy ending for her, like they couldn't see it that way. Did Hmm. you guys have that sense? I was perfectly on board with where you put her. And the fact that even, even the little bit where you said uh, with Q that he had detached that world from the multiverse so that during her existence, nothing could happen to her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But goodness. And I was like, Oh wow! Now that that's that's an incredible gift, yeah. you know, uh, because she ends up with her daughter and she ends up in this beautiful place. I mean, basically, she is home. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and I love. I I thought it was a beautiful ending. Yeah, so. I okay. I definitely second that. I I had no problem with that at all. I thought it was really fitting. Well, that's good. I mean, I felt that way too. Um, but you know, when 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 people who I respect say things, I'm like, oh, huh, wow, I wonder, is that really kind of creepy? Um, but, you know, I, I guess I was sort of like the thought of, you know, having her go home and be with Gretchen and Phoebe um, was always going to be weird for all of them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, it, it, I don't know. Yeah. She's an unfortunate yeah, no, character because she's an accident, you know? She's something that should, in some way should never have happened. And how do you reintegrate that? I mean, you know, they've, we've watched in some ways the struggle with the, the duplicate of Will Riker that was created a long time ago. Um, and I think that some of that's been addressed in books as well that I haven't read. But um, it's just, it's really, it's hard to imagine um, realistically somebody like that going back and being like, well, I'm a totally different person and have a totally different life history, but you're still my mom and you're still my sister and whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, plus I did feel like, you know, her whole life was based on getting back to that child. And I do think that the reviewer that I'm thinking of right now probably hasn't had children yet. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because the sense was, well, you know, she never even met, I mean, she basically never met the baby. She was dead when the baby was born and whatever. But I mean, there's like nine months, 10 months before the, the child comes out where you, that child is with you, you know? Mm-hmm. And and to never have then mm-hmm. had them in your arms just, you know, is completely unacceptable. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have to admit at earlier on in the book, I kind of thought like, oh, this is a character who probably has to die. And mm-hmm. I was really, really, really <laughs> happy with the ending because that didn't happen. So, yeah, um, yeah, I was definitely thankfully proven wrong on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, she couldn't stay. But there was no way I was going to make her life any worse than I had already made it. 
Mm-hmm. Once you've, you know, ripped somebody from their existence and tortured them, I mean, we got to cut out some slack. We just have to do that. As far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, uh, and what I loved about that too, you know, I, I don't have kids, but I have nieces, I have nephews, I have people close to me that have children and and I'd like to have my own kids one day, hopefully, mm-hmm. um, God willing. And so I can understand, you know, I, I've watched people go through that, you know, that they, you know, might watch my sister be pregnant. And the moment that that happens and they find that out, there's something that changes, you know, there's like, I, it's an, it, it's a biological thing that happens, right. you know, and I watch it happen to my brother-in-law, you know, he's not having the baby, but th- there's something that just happens. And, and, um, so that drive to get that there and and leaving her in that place I felt like was it, it just it you know it does it's not something that happens very much in Star Trek but to say that you gave them their happily ever after yeah. is exactly mm-hmm. what that Janeway deserved at that point you're right so yeah, <laughs> yeah. love it uh, and it was it was one of those moments when I'm kind of thinking about it right now it's it's very emotional like um to watch a character go through that and and finally find a place where it you know it's almost as if she went to heaven yeah i mean uh so it and that's you know thank god that q decided to be benevolent yeah uh to her yeah well that journey for him makes sense to me too because i do feel like if he wasn't going to stay angry forever which nobody really can um that that ultimately he was going to have to find his own way to forgive and, and doing it through her just, it just felt really right to me and that his wife would participate, you know, just the, just yeah. to think of the two of them raising that baby for a while um, after losing junior, just, I don't know. It felt like it was healing for everybody. Well, and the fact that it was them, I just, again, it was this really, it was an amazing thing to see. Q have humanity in a way that he's never had before. Right. That was a great, I mean, he definitely has learned a lot. And, uh, you know, like you said, <laughs> you can't stay angry forever. And if Q stays angry forever, forever is forever. <laughs> so that's a long time. <laughs> uh, one thing from that scene I just have to say that I absolutely loved was uh, when they see them show up, the kind of I think you said like just a the barest hint of like a look of regret and sadness passed over Q and his wife's face, like, oh, well, our time of looking after this kid's over. I yeah. just I, that was so touching. That was so cool. Well, it's good they can go back and visit whenever they want because they're cute. So <laughs> that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. I what I liked here as well, and I I kind of turned this to a new Janeway because. The Admiral is different. You know, she has grown and learned how to handle things, even if people around her haven't realized that that's the case yet, right. which I loved that storyline. But it, it was so wonderful and I thought was so important. There's, I'm a huge Grey's Anatomy fan, so this would be kind of a weird thing for me to bring up in a Star Trek podcast, but there's a great scene where Christina's talking to Meredith and she said, you know, knowing about your crap and doing something about it are two totally different things. Yeah. <laughs> And I really liked the way that you have used that storyline with the Admiral to show the validity of 
knowing what's wrong and making sure you get the help to fix it, Mm -hmm. whatever that is. And specifically, you know, for the Admiral Janeway, it is having gone through therapy Mm -hmm. and being somebody who's dealt with depression and dealt with some awful things uh, and going to therapy and finding real help there. Yeah. Um, I, I really wanted to say how much I appreciated that storyline and I ha- how important I think it is to say it's okay to say you need help. Right. Even if you're Janeway, even if you're Nancy, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. Right. And, you know, the thing I think is true is that it's not necessarily going to be a therapist's office for everyone. I mean, some people are fortunate enough to have surrounded themselves with really, really smart friends. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Folks who can yeah. perform a similar function in that you can be totally honest with them and they can be totally honest with you and sort of guide you through the rougher spots in your life. Um, but for other people, and I think Catherine is a perfect example of somebody like this, in the sense that she is sort of separated from so many people that she spends all of her time with just by her rank and her position, that um, she almost has to have somebody from the outside who can who can perform that function for her because I just don't think she or a lot of people in command can really risk being that vulnerable with the folks that they're leading. You know, there's almost an illusion of invulnerability that they have to maintain in order to do their job. But that has to be one of the most oppressive things to sort of carry with you all the time too, you know? Yeah. And even, you know, she has this relationship with Chakotay, but they're still figuring out that, you know, path that they're on. And it's it's not always completely comfortable yet. So even there, it's, you know, she's still his uh, commanding officer. And so there's always, they're still working out that level of comfort with the t- in, in detachment that she has felt and figuring that out. So, yeah, even with Chakotay now, she still feels a little bit more removed and uh, I, I just love the path you have drawn and, and it, it it was just something I really appreciated uh, what you were saying through that and, and have been doing with her ever since you brought her back because I think that's just an important message for people to realize and especially when we think about you know all that's been happening in the news and we're talking about mental illness mm-hmm. yeah get the help that you need it's 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 okay to need help right that's what it means to be human uh, we all need help yeah um and i i really i just, I just appreciated that that it's a subtle storyline here but i think it's something that i felt like was really important i do too and it's a hard it i mean it's something i'm discovering too as i'm creating this story um with janeway and chakotay because as much as they're on the same page in some ways, it just, it's going to take time for them to get completely on the same page. Do you know what I mean? They've known each other for such a long time. They've been such an important part of each other's lives, but they've also both gone through so many massive changes and different kinds of growth and different tragedies and whatever that, um, it's, it's, it's almost like, I always feel like they're, they're they're this close, (laughs) you know, to it being just perfect, but, they can't quite, you know, can't quite get there yet, mm-hmm. which is weird, but, you know. Well, one thing uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about with this book and, and the entire kind of 
for full circle series uh, in general is the idea of juggling all of these characters and ships. I mean, we've got an entire fleet of characters and ships to keep track of. How do you kind of juggle all of that and still manage, because you do, to keep the readers satisfied uh, with the old and the new characters? Um, you know, it's hard enough to have give time to one crew, but you have a whole fleet. You know, I'm thinking of of great little character moments like um, uh, Icheb's budding, I want to call it a budding bromance here, which <laughs> I, I just loved. I thought that was brilliant. And uh, just all these little character things, you you kind of manage to pay service to all of these characters. And, um, you know, what's that like to kind of decide how to manage that? Well, you know, um, I, <laughs> I often start out projects with character lists, like um, who, which characters, main characters or groups of characters are going to be most essential to the story that I'm telling in, in kind of what configurations, you know what I mean? Because a lot of times um, certain characters end up bouncing off the same characters throughout the course of a story, um, mm. especially if they only have a couple of scenes. Um, so, and, and the list usually starts with the core Voyager characters, you know, the big sort of seven or eight, um, mm. and occasionally Neelix if we're going to be in that area. And then... Um, I sort of start drawing lines between them and the other folks who are going to either have their own issues or be most helpful. And even though there are certain characters who have had more significant development now to the point where, in my mind, they're on the same level as the characters who are always on the show, uh, characters like Cambridge, um, in some ways O'Donnell and Farkas, um, because they're in command, they just get a lot more play than some of the other folks. Um, mm. Then there are the folks, and Conlon certainly, um, but then there are the folks who um, I may have, we've mentioned, we've seen maybe doing their jobs a number of different times, um, but but we still don't know a lot about them. And so they're the folks that I know eventually are going to need more fleshing out. And so I try to choose one or two of them if it makes sense for the story that I can draw in, in a way that's going to be revealing of their character, if that makes sense. So, um, with each it was, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be able to give him a lot of time with the folks he knew well, uh, already. Um, and part of that is also, you know, establishing him as, um, in his own place of personal growth, you know, when he was first on the ship in the series, he was somebody that they had taken in. And so everybody was very concerned about, everybody sort of adopted him and was nurturing him in their own ways. Seven, of course, playing the primary role in that, but also Bolana and Janeway sometimes. Um, and even, you know, there were moments where you'd see him have a nice moment with Chakotay or something, right? So, but you had this sense that everybody on board was, was watching out for each of and trying to help him along. But then he went away and he went all the way through Starfleet Academy and he's demonstrated in, you know, these last few books um, that he really is ready to to kind of do amazing things, <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, but I couldn't have him spend most of this book interacting with Janeway or Chakotay or Tom and Galana. I mean, they're just, you know, what they were doing. They had other stuff to do. Um, mm. and, and, and so I was looking for a peer for him. And Finn, who I have loved ever since we first met him in Children of the Storm, and who I have missed and wanted to do more with, 
just sort of came immediately to mind. And once I hit on the two of them together, it was like, oh, yes. Yeah, they really complemented each other there. I, I yeah, really well, I mean, enjoyed... these two super bright guys, right? Yeah. And very young to be doing, mm. to have the responsibilities that they have. So they have a lot in common for sure, but there's obviously also differences that we'll be exploring as time goes on. Oh, excellent. I was, I was, that was, my next question was going to be, are we going to see more of those two? So awesome. That's oh, hell cool. yeah. We're seeing more of those two. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that we were talking about that before the show, and it, I did, I did just the bromance there was great, and I, I you know, because Echep was a character that you know, I guess in the show for me was just like, eh. but the way that you brought him to life in this story, uh, he really felt like a fully realized character in this story, which was great, and I like, I actually was caring about getting back to his story, even with all that was going on. Mm-hmm. Like and and especially once him and Finn connected as friends, I thought that was so great and so really like the way that you just are kind of organically made that happen. Yeah. And you know it like just bringing out one more of those characters from Voyager that was small and maybe weren't people's favorites, but you've you're slowly bringing us to be like, oh no, I'm gonna make each of your favorite now. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's I, 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 at this point, I sort of feel like it's an embarrassment of riches. There are so <laughs> many great characters that I have here to play with at any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times when I'm starting something new, you know, like I have been recently with the new stories that we're working on, um, there's also the thing to go, okay, well, now I've seen these people with these people. What happens if I put them over here, you know? And a lot of times story will develop just by putting them with somebody we've never seen them with before. And seeing what happens then, you know. One of the the things that we were talking about uh, and thinking, you know, there's a lot of interaction that you have on the the Trek BBS and um, the interaction you have with those readers, and just kind of wondering what is it like to get, you know, that immediate feedback. Somebody who you know reads the book in one night and that back and forth that you get to have, you know, almost as soon as the book is released. Well, it's fantastic in a lot of ways. I mean, you feel, or I feel, um, really fortunate that, you know, I'm working in a, in a franchise where there is so much ongoing interest and passion for the stories that there are folks who are willing to spend their time, you know, in a place like the Trek BBS talking seriously about these things. And, you know, at, at the same time, it's frustrating because Part of me could sit there, especially right when a new book comes out, and just spend hours and hours talking with folks and answering questions and going deeper into stuff and just sort of geeking out over how much fun it all is, you know. And I literally don't have that time. I mean, those hours don't exist in the day for me. Mm-hmm. So I always feel like I'm kind of shortchanging them in a lot of ways. I, I especially, I mean, it seems like I used to have more time uh, to devote to that. And now, even though it's the only place I go regularly, um, to, to, to find out what folks are saying and to sort of answer as best I can. Um, I just, I, I always feel like, oh God, I mean, like right now there's like 15 posts in there that I need to go respond to. And I've been trying to get to it for three days and I still haven't gotten to it. And I just feel awful, you know? Well, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of authors that don't kind of, uh, ever take that time to really, interact with the with their readers on that level as you know kind of appear on a message board thing 
So, you know, I, I, for one really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, even if every single message isn't replied to or, or that kind of thing, just the fact that you're taking some time out of you, out of your day, uh, to do that, I, th- I think is really appreciated by me for sure. And I'm sure a lot of the other people there really, really appreciate the time that you give, uh, you know, even if it can't be as much as, as you, you or they would maybe prefer, you know, I, I think it's a really great thing you're able to do. Yeah. Well, it's certainly, it's certainly a lot of fun and, you know, and like I said, I, I would do it all day long if I, if I, if I could, um, because, you know, I spend so much of my life and my sort of in my head, um, thinking about these characters and this universe and these stories. And these are the folks who get it. You know what I mean? They're Mm -hmm. the folks who feel as strongly about it as I do. And so that connects us in a way that, you know, you're not connected to anybody else. So, um, you know, I feel, I feel a certain responsibility, I think, to them and, and, and a tremendous amount of gratitude as well. Um, because just their enthusiasm, when you spend, you know, six months, eight months of your life working on a story, um, and then the day finally comes when folks are reading it. I mean, it's a weird thing to just sit here and go, God, right now people are reading those words. I wonder what they're thinking. <laughs> you know? And, and now, and I get to find out, you know, that I think there are a lot of authors who will never get that kind of feedback. And, um, mm. it's very helpful. And it's also helpful when there's stuff they don't like. I mean, it sticks with me. I don't, I can't, you reach a point when you've been doing this for a really long time where you can't let, you know, extreme praise or, um, extreme criticism impact you. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't let it all in and right. eat you up or, mm-hmm. you know, lift you up, um, too much because it can become overwhelming and it can get into your head and it can mess you up. So there's a certain amount of, distance you have to keep from the most extreme of opinions. But at the same time, you know, over the years, I've gotten to know some of these people, not personally, but just through their continued responses. And there are several who I think um, their responses uh, indicate a level of thought and a depth of uh, thought that I find really compelling. And it feels like, um, uh, not that I'm writing for them specifically, but that, you know, this is definitely um, somebody who shares the passion that I have. And so when stuff isn't working for them, it means as much to me as when stuff is, you know, because their thoughts help inform what I'm doing going forward. Not like, uh, you know, it's it's a hard line to explain. You're not writing stories specifically because the fans say, gosh, I want to see this next. But um, you just get a general sense of, this is working or wow, this really didn't, didn't happen the way I thought it would or impact them the way I thought it would. And, and that lives inside me too. And I think informs what I do going forward. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a very mutually beneficial relationship. I guess. Yeah. And, and one of the things I think that uh, I like about it all, and, and hopefully we get to give you the opportunity to have some of those questions that people might have there get answered throughout the questions that Dan and I think up, um, and I love that that you have this care uh, about not only the story, um, but the, the love for the, the people that you're writing them for. And 
you know, I, I was thinking about this today um, because, uh, you know, it's it's not something that we generally do with the with the authors is really completely give our full opinions. Um, we just we lo- would rather ask them, you know, but I couldn't think of anything in this book that was like, eh, you know, and that that's that is a, a rarity. So um, I did want to let you know for me. You know, for I loved it, the Eternal Tide. That was my favorite one that you had written so far. Uh-huh. But I think that this one is rivaling that. Uh, and so I just, uh, I really appreciate you putting your heart and soul into the stories and spending so much time with them because uh, I think your dedication and your love of the characters and the source material it shows in the way that you take Voyager stories that you know, can come and go, but you make them into something a little bit cooler, a little more beautiful, a little bit more interesting or exciting or scary or, you know, any of those things. And um, But that's only something that an author can do if they really love the source material that they're working with and, um, and, and really love what they do and and I think that comes through in your books you know Dan and I talked and we were so honest about this but I don't think that there's been a book on the Trek BBS when we've talked about it in there and I've had to rate it that's yours that I haven't been like no that's at least above average (laughs) you know the, the rating system that they have there but usually it's like Oh, is this above average or is this excellent? And and that's a great place for an author to have been consistently. And so and it and it just shows because you do, you have this wonderful passion. And we I think as Trek fans of the literature have all responded to that and uh really just appreciate it from you. So, you know, it's it's not it's not um I'm not trying to overpraise you, so you don't want to take it. It's okay. Go um, ahead. But it is super appreciated. It's super appreciated. No, no, I totally, <laughs> oh no, I no, don't totally no, stop. Oh, I mean, I, keep it I coming. Really it. Yeah, and that I mean, I I can't really add anything to what Matthew said there. That uh, I'm I'm just gonna add a big old ditto to that. <laughs> well, thank you. But I also appreciate you guys, you know, taking the time to do these podcasts and and giving us a place where we can come and sort of, you know, fill in some of the backstory and the blanks and you know and and think out loud um because there's just i mean there aren't that many people in my life i think i've said this to you guys before who i can really talk to in depth about this stuff who get you know really down to the nitty-gritty about what we're working on and and um and who understand and care about it as much as you guys do so it makes it a lot more fun yeah no it does it's the joy of doing this uh, i think dan and i every time we have an author on we're like this is why we love doing this show i mean we enjoy talking about star trek books don't mm. get me wrong but when we get to talk to you guys um it's it's just that much more enjoyable and uh you know for you what's uh what are you working on what's coming up next uh in the lineup uh is are there more voyager books do you have anything that you're uh having time to work i know we've talked a little bit you've been trying to get some some of your other ideas um that you know aren't trek related what's going on with you writing wise uh well i was contracted several months back to write two new voyager books so um yes. i have now finally completed 
and been approved, the outlines for both are done. And I've started writing the first of the two. Um, And uh, let's see. Well, it's called Architects of Infinity. And um, it's another picking up right where we left off and continuing on. Um, I keep thinking I'm going to stop doing that at some point, but I just haven't found that point yet. Um, And um, the next two stories, they're not – they're both standalones, um, but there are threads, as in many things that I do, that connect them. So um, I think I, I have a feeling that when they're done, you know, which will be about eight or nine months from now, um, people will look back on them sort of as a duology. But um, but yeah, so it's uh, I'm working through the next one right now, and then I will start immediately on the next one after that. And yeah, I mean, for now, for the foreseeable future, it's um, me writing a whole lot um, <laughs> more about these characters and, and you know, hopefully um, continuing to find ways to um, keep the readers engaged and happy. I mean, you know, the the amount of the response to this particular book has been sort of overwhelming in a way um, because so many people have just been so tickled by it and so incredibly delighted and enjoyed it so much. And, you know, part of you thinks, wow, I I don't think I'm ever going to be able to do that again, (laughs) you know? Um, So it's a little like, ooh, wow, okay. Um, But again, that's one of those things that you just have to set aside and just, you know, put your head down and keep doing what you have always done and let the chips sort of fall where they may. Um, you know, sometimes stories really do come together in ways that uh, almost feel magical. And, like, you look back on them and think, well, how did I even do that? But you can't ever capture that in a bottle and recreate it. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, yeah. I don't know. I'm <sighs> I'm excited to be moving forward, and I'm scared to be moving forward. And I just hope that um, I keep, you know, telling stories that people get excited about reading. Any um, any little hints about where the crew kind of might be going? Are we going in a, a little bit like less tragic position for? Is it a for, little, for one I, book? Is sure. Anything? <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I'm not sure which one of them, but <laughs> yeah, no, the, the, no. See, like the next one, the Architects of Infinity. I mean, really, the 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 uh, inspirational sort of moment behind that that you know how i said in pocket full of lies it was that scene where we've stopped time Mm -hmm. in the middle of the battlefield and we're walking somebody through it going this you see this person the the um the moment like that for the one i'm working on now is completely the opposite in terms of the emotions that it evokes it's one of those just jaw-dropping awe-inspiring like oh my god who would even do that that is so cool um so this is much more of a exploration with the sense of wonder and awe with a, you know, a nice, cool mystery, um, you know, soft, gooey center uh, to the thing. Um, but this next one really is a little bit more um, just um, we find something incredibly cool and we have to figure out what it means and what it's doing. And that leads us to the next one, which I have to say, yeah, it's going to be um, a little bit harder, but ultimately then comes out 
I think, in a in another sort of moment of, of big light. You know, I'm I'm still trying to um, maintain the sense that um, we're back in the Delta Quadrant, not just to pick up the pieces from you know the messes that we made the first time around, but to explore new stuff and to find the things that will inspire us to keep exploring. Um, and so the, this next story is is very much about that. Um, even though I feel like with the end of Pocketful of Lies, there's more story with the Krenim, um to be told, we're not going to do that for a while. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, you've definitely piqued my curiosity. That sounds really exciting. So very cool. We shall see. Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you so much for always giving us your time, Kirsten, and especially just with your history with the show. I mean, uh, you've been with us from the very beginning of, of Literary Treks, and it's always uh, a real joy. Um, and you have such joy when you talk about what you do, and I think that that's infectious. <laughs> and, uh, so you know, I, I love it. You know, I love that you have fun with what you do, and you make us have fun with what you put the characters through, even if it's, you know, horrendous. Uh, and it makes us <laughs> want to keep coming back to find out what you're going to do next. Uh, I figure, uh, I, I always picture you writing wherever it is that Kirsten writes, and she has her, like, uh, Mr. Burns <laughs> So, <laughs> um, yeah, but, um, just want to remind everybody, if you do want to talk to Kirsten, the best place to do that is at the Trek BBS, and um, she's too busy writing otherwise to talk to us other places, so yeah. stop bothering her and let her write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, do, I should tell you guys, it's going to be a while. I mean, given that the next one isn't even really written yet, and it's usually you know, eight months to a year once it's submitted before it's released. The earliest these are going to come out now, because what are we, at the beginning of 2016? Mm-hmm. Is like mm-hmm. mid to the end of 2017, probably. That's understandable. They're, they're worth the wait, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like you'll get, I mean, just like you did with Atonement and Pocket Full of Lies, there'll be a little bit of a wait now, and then you'll probably get two closer together again. Nice. I think is the goal. Mm, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kirsten, uh, and I really appreciate you you coming on the show, and thank you so much for a, a great book mm-hmm. and uh, just the little tidbits for us to look forward to, uh, as Dan said. I just Now I'm kind of on the edge of my seat waiting to see what's coming next for this uh, full circle crew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, me yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always, I mean, I, I think I think everyone can hear it in our voices how happy we are when uh, authors and especially yourself come on the show uh, to talk with us. So it's it's always really exciting. Thank you so much. You are most welcome. Well, Matthew, I have to say that's probably one of the best conversations uh, I've ever had with an author of Star Trek novels. What a joy to have Kirsten Beyer on the show once again. It's it really is. Dan, I, you know, I love, um, I love having Kirsten on the show. She is just so effervescent in her joy for what she does. She brings it to the interview, and it, it's just so much fun. And I think, you know, Pocketful of Lies has really set the stage for this year 
too. Uh, you know, we it's it's just a great start to the year so far mm-hmm. uh, with Ascendance and now this. Uh, it's just phenomenal. The, the bar is extremely high. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and it's the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. of Star Trek. So what a fantastic way to start the year. So thank you, Kirsten, for coming on, and we really appreciate it. And can't wait to, to have you back. Uh, you know, our, our thought is Dan and I, uh, to maybe go back and cover some of the older Voyager books uh, that she's written and uh, maybe, um, you know, some of uh, Christy Golden's books as well, maybe covering those duologies first. So, uh, yeah, this this year is going to be so much fun on Literary Treks, so, so we hope you'll continue to join us. And I'm so thankful that we have our associate producers here through Patreon who make sure that this content does keep coming to each and every week. I'd love to thank Will Wynn, Ken Tripp, Brandon Shea Matullah, and Bruce Gibson for their support through Patreon and making sure that Literary Treks comes through each week here on Trek FM. Now, one of the things about Trek FM that's pretty cool is we're a listener-supported network, and that means that we don't have a lot of ads or anything like that on our shows. We just try to make sure that you get great content that sounds great as well with good discussion and to do that, it's it's a pretty expensive process, so we can use your help. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can see how you can be part of the team and really make sure that, especially in this 50th anniversary, amazing Star Trek podcasts and beyond, and beyond, beyond, with the 602 Club keep coming to you each week. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, Dan, when you're trying to decide which pool to jump in to figure out which alternate universe you want to visit where can we find you you know there's that one alternate universe that's entirely made of chocolate and don't think that i'm not tempted (laughs) um matthew you can find me online my website is treklet reviews www.treklet.com and there i review star trek novels both old and new Uh, i'm on facebook.com slash treklet reviews and on Twitter, and my username there is at Kurtrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And I also have an Instagram account. My username there is Kurtrats47. And of course, you can always find me on the Babel Conference talking about all things Star Trek. And Matthew, when you're not compiling a really long list of engineering violations, where can we find you? Oh my gosh, I'm never going to get through this. Oh, so glad Echeb's here to help, though. Uh... You can find me tweeting about that at MattRushing02. I might take some pictures of the violations when other people aren't looking on Instagram at MRushing. You can find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones where we talk about Deep Space Nine exclusively here on the network. You can also find me doing The 602 Club, which is our general geek show talking about all things geeky that aren't related to Star Trek. So much fun on that show. I mean... We just talked about Dune, uh, the 1984 Dune, which was so much fun with the ladies from Educating Geeks as well as Norman Lau, so check that out. And then I have a brand new podcast that I've started that's not on the network, but it's called Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast. That's with John Mills. We just talk about a great new Star Wars topic each week. No news or anything like that. Just two guys sitting around talking Star Wars. You can find that over at aggressivenegotiations.squarespace.com as well as just searching in iTunes. We want to thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. 
something you call that light reading? To each his own, number one. 